Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, it's all about the scandal of the concentration camps, which breaks across Great Britain as the Fawcett Commission releases its initial report. We also continue to monitor General Christian de Vett, who has a large commander of 700 men and is beginning to move towards the Cape once more. His plan is to increase the pressure on the English, although his previous attempt a few months ago ended in failure. But first, a reality check for Lord Kitchener, who has led what has become known as the drives across southern Africa, where tens of thousands of British troops have been mopping up the remnants of the guerrilla commandos, but at a cost. The Boer women and children have been herded into concentration camps, along with their black workers, and this has turned into a catastrophe. As Emily Hobhouse realised more than nine months before, squeezing civilians into camps without proper hygiene or sanitation is a disaster waiting to happen. The country didn't have long to wait. The Fawcett Commission was made up of a fairly diverse group of women. It was a daring experiment, a women-only commission which would investigate conditions in the concentration camps for the British and compile a report which would be given to the government in December. Between August and December 1901, they steamed up and down the felt in their special train. They may have had diverse backgrounds, but they were all united in one thing, this commission. They believed that the war against the Boers was just and that the civilians were part of the Boer support network and therefore should be punished. Led by Mrs. Millicent Fawcett, a liberal unionist and feminist, she was also a leader of the women's suffragette movement. Lady Knox was the wife of Major General Sir William Knox, who was on Kitchener's staff. The four other women included a nurse from Gaia's Hospital, two doctors who were already living in South Africa. One married a British officer during her tour of the country. So you can say that they were hardly likely to criticise the military and the English establishment. Yet this is exactly what they did, because the conditions in the camps were so dire They would have appeared really stupid had they not reported the critical shortcomings. If Broderick had expected them to add a coat of ladylike whitewash to the camps, the war secretary was in for a surprise. By mid-September, they had already inspected seven of the camps, including those visited by Emily Hobhouse, and their impressions were mixed. In some cases, women played lawn tennis, in others, they were dying of dysentery. Sometimes the Boer women would be outright hostile, screaming obscenities at them, and others, they would be invited into these tiny tents for tea. When the report hit government officials' desks back in London, it basically confirmed what Hobhouse had found in April and reported in June. They immediately issued a series of recommendations. The Fawcett Commission said 40 trained nurses should be sent to South Africa immediately and a strong effort was to be made to improve the railway support to the camps. Remember how we've heard how the women and children were shoved like animals into the open carriages, stuffed into these for days on end with very little to eat or drink. Similar, it must be said, to how the Nazis stuffed the Jews into the trains on the way to the extermination camps. The Fawcett Commission also noted the extremely poor food and said rations should be increased by half a pound of rice a week. Coal rations were to be increased, allowing the women to boil water as they could not find enough wood. Bedsteads had to be fashioned as many of the women and children were actually sleeping on the ground, worsening the health problems they were experiencing. The Fawcett Commission also recommended that every camp have a proper apparatus for sterilising linen used by typhoid patients and that a travelling inspector of the camps should be appointed. 
This was just the start of their findings. They also wanted water boilers to be provided to boil all drinking water, that vegetables should be added to the rations, and that camp matrons be installed immediately. All in all, the Commission visited 33 of the white concentration camps in South Africa, but bypassed all the black camps where conditions were worse. Then they focused on specific camps, and in some cases they lauded the commanders. In others, they lambasted what they saw as a failure of leadership. Emily Hobhouse had spotted one particular commander, Cole Bowen, who ran Northall's Point Camp, as an example of a committed and compassionate man who knew how to run a civilian-based unit. The Fawcett Commission echoed her findings. But the Bloemfontein camp shocked them, with its unsterilised linen being passed from one typhoid patient to another, and sometimes to healthy women and children. Needless to say, the linen was passing on this terrible disease, and they were particularly vicious about the commanders there. Branford was even worse. A typhoid epidemic had killed 337 inmates, a tenth of the camp, in less than three weeks in October 1901. They said three others were also led by grossly incompetent British military officers and called for a complete overhaul. At Heilbronn in the Free State, they blamed the military directly for a measles outbreak. The night they arrived at that camp, ten women and children died. They wrote, Some of the houses were comfortable, others were miserable sheds or stables, and one hovel was surely meant for a pig, and yet a young girl dangerously ill, lay in it. They weren't finished. There is barely language strong enough to express our opinion of the sending a mass disease into a healthy camp, but the cemetery at Heilbronn tells the price we have paid in lives for the terrible mistake. But the most damning criticisms were aimed at the Mafeking camp in the northwestern Transvaal. Their train had steamed into the city on the 20th of August 1901 and caught the military leadership there virtually with their pants down. They found women washing clothes in streams laced with excrement. Latrines were not disinfected. Slop water was being thrown out near the tents and Fawcett warned the military that typhoid would break out soon. Instead of acting, the arrogant officers in command told her that only 40 people had died since March. Well, when they returned in November, less than a month later, there were 400 deaths a month, mainly caused by typhoid. Millicent Fawcett, you see, was not to be trifled with. Photographs of her show a woman with a steely gaze, who Thomas Packenham describes as one who would hate to be called masculine, because she said men were such idiots, and she preferred not to be compared to them. Also, her professionalism and how she conducted the commission made Lord Kitchener look like a bungling amateur. She had her logbook and papers covered with statistics, which she used like a cudgel to beat the British establishment. August, death rate 1,878 amongst 105,347 white inmates. 467 deaths among the 32,272 black. September 2nd, 411 deaths among the 109,418 whites and 600 amongst the 38,549 blacks. October 3rd, 156 deaths among the 111,619 whites, 698 deaths among the 43,780 blacks. The October stats officially pushed the death rate into what is usually experienced during a plague. 
The number of inmates with serious illnesses had climbed now to 34.4% of all camps, more than a third. The death rate of children in Orange River Colony camps was now 62.9%, and in the Transvaal, 58.5%. More than half the children were dying. These are horrifying numbers, each one a story of mental suffering, physical torture, abuse and pain. And the Fawcett women were actually telling it pretty much as it was. In King, Fawcett pointed out that if that death rate continued through the next year, everyone in the camp would be dead before the next 12 months were out. Fawcett then spells out the causes. They blamed the military for failing to run a civilian camp properly, but they also lashed out at the Boer women for what they called their poor attention to hygiene. Even at the best of times... One of the Fawcett women noted, The Boer woman has a horror of ventilation. It is not easy to describe the pestilential atmosphere of the tents. The Saxon word stinking is the only one which is appropriate. Lord Milner, the High Commissioner in South Africa, was stunned. Eventually, Prime Minister Chamberlain got the message and recognised the ultimate cause of the catastrophe playing out in the dozens of camps in South Africa. He knew... That is, High Commissioner Milner was really responsible, but the military under Lord Kitchener was equally to blame. By mid-November, before the report was out, Chamberlain had already decided things must change. Back home, Winston Churchill was beginning his criticism of the military after at first backing what he thought was an acceptable strategy. Chamberlain's various telegrams, including one where the Prime Minister said, It is necessary that I should be satisfied that all possible steps are being taken to reduce the rate of mortality, especially among children, and that full and early reports should be sent to me. Milner's reaction to these telegrams verged on panic. He wrote that the women and children would all be dead by the spring of 1903, only I shall not be there to see, as the continuance of the present state of affairs for another two or three months shall blow us all out of the water. He was more worried about his job than the fact that epidemics were wiping out around a tenth of all people in the camps. The fact is that following the common sense report from Fawcett, the death rate did begin to drop. By February 1902, it dipped to 6.9%, and by April, just before the war's end, to 2%, which was lower than the death rate in Glasgow at the time. But it was ten months after the camps were first raised in Parliament where opposition leader Lloyd George had caused a rumpus by criticising the army and after Henry Campbell Bannerman had appeared at a Holborn restaurant and used the phrase methods of barbarism to describe the incarceration of women and children in camps. Even the Fawcett Commission seemed to agree. Meanwhile, Kitchener, who is based at his HQ in Pretoria, initially thought an ideal way to sort out the problem would be to exile all the women and children to remove them from South Africa en masse. Deport them, he said. The Natal ministers cordially approved of the step. Broderick, fortunately, rejected that idea. Watching from the wings at this point was continental Europe and British politicians were aware of the sensitivities there. In November 1901, commenting on the reasons why the cabinet had turned down Kitchener's proposals, Broderick had stated, You see from the papers how easily a torch might be put into the German powder magazine. The English had finally woken up to the disasters of the concentration camp, but it was precisely at this point that two groups of civilians, blacks and surrendered Boers, began to be armed at greater numbers by Lord Kitchener. 
The military authorities had given assurances mid-November that civilians would take over the management of the camps. This did not happen until after the Fawcett report, and even then, the military was still responsible for supplies. Some reforms were effected even before the camps were transferred to the civil authorities, but there was still a sort of mad Darwinism that the British were using. For example, Milner, who wrote in December 1901 that the theory that all weekly children being dead, the rate would fall off, is not so far borne out by the facts. I take it the strong ones must be dying now, and that they would all be dead by the spring of 1903. He also described the policy as a mistake, a blunder, and a sad fiasco at various points, and claimed that had he foreseen that, the soldiers meant to sweep the whole population of the country higgledy-piggledy into a couple of dozen camps, he would not have touched the scheme. He wanted the sweeping confined to a few nasty areas. Despite the fact that the Fawcett Commission was not in favour of the wholesale removal of the concentration camps for families to the coast where the weather was warmer and the water more plentiful, thousands began to be shipped to Natal and the Cape Colony. New camps were constructed at East London and Newtonhague. Chamberlain told Milner and Kitchener that some of the camp inmates inland should be given the option of staying there or returning to their old homes on the felt. Of course, Kitchener shot this idea down, so did Millicent Fawcett saying, To turn the 100,000 people, there were now more than 120,000 in camps, now being fed in the concentration camps out on the felt to take care of themselves would be cruelty. It would be turning them out to starvation. That, of course, was only partly true. The women and even the older children in these camps were used to caring for themselves on the open felt. They could hunt and shoot. They could rear their livestock. They could plant gardens. Just before Fawcett's report was released publicly on 12th December 1901, Skulker Berger, the acting Transvaal president and the state secretary, Rates, had sent Kitchener a formal letter warning him that the way in which civilians were being cleared from their farms amounted to a serious infringement on the ethics of honourable warfare. He sent that letter to London, but also wrote a reply after consulting Milner that because Berger was complaining about the camps, the Boers were in a position to provide for the women and children themselves. He said he was willing to hand over all women and children to the commandos. He just needed a time and a place. This was an extraordinary unilateral note, and Milner, for one, had only just been quoted as saying the inmates wouldn't ever survive in the felt by themselves. So why did Kitchener suddenly make this offer? Historians believe he was sending a message to the Boers, saying they were not in any condition to support their loved ones in any way. At the same time, Kitchener wrote another letter to Broderick at the war office saying... Of course, we could not force them out. President Steyn in the Free State was enraged. Now, as if the martyrdom of the women and children was not sufficient, Your Excellency makes a proposal which you know, if accepted by us, would result in making the lives of those poor innocent victims intolerable. Your Excellency knows that there is hardly a single house in the Orange Free State that is not burnt or destroyed. Yet the Commission had achieved something. It is a fact that hardly any white civilians were sent into concentration camps starting in December 1901. For all the exchanges of letters on the ground, there were a few changes. For example, by late December, Ian Hamilton instructed his troops that when Boer families are captured with a lager or in wagons trekking about the country, the wagons should be taken from them and the families deposited at any convenient farm with a week's supply of food. A cape cart should also be left with them to enable them to communicate with their friends. 
S.P. Spies, the historian, writes in his book Methods of Barbarism that the fact that hardly any more white civilians were sent into the concentration camps during the last phase of the war was an additional reason why conditions in these camps improved. But for blacks, it was another matter. So many had been left bereft by the columns driving across the felt that they were being incarcerated in greater numbers. More, too, were also deciding to join the British army. The number of Boers joining the British was also increasing. It was a time of joblessness, and the Boers were very good at fighting. They were called khaki Boers and hated by the bitter enders. When Kitchener took over from Roberts at the end of 1900, he had said that blacks who were already armed could keep their rifles, but as we've heard, black South Africans had been fighting on both sides, and now the British had armed almost 30,000 black South Africans. By the end of the war in May 1902, Transvaal alone had seen more than 50,000 firearms handed in by black South Africans as part of the demilitarization process. Kitchener decided to go on tour of the concentration camps in December 1901, and it became a kind of draft process where he'd encouraged the Boers to sign up to fight their brethren, and many did, joining the National Scouts, as they were known. All of this going on was driving generals like de Wet, de la Rey, and Smuts to extreme distraction. De Wet in particular had been planning to punish the National Scouts, the unit made up of ex-Boer commandos. On the 8th of December, he was still camped at Lindley, waiting for his chance to deal with a personal matter. It had been my plan to remain at Lindley and await my chance of dealing with Colonel Baker, for he had under him a certain national scout who constantly made raids from Binbach with a band of four or five hundred blacks. That certain national scout was his hated brother, Pete, who had changed sides the previous year. The fact that Pete was fighting both with the British and alongside blacks drove De Wet into a frenzy. The growing number of skirmishes where armed black South Africans were facing the Boers was beginning to worry Jan Smuts, who believed a true ethnic cleansing kind of effect would happen should this get out of hand. It is a fear that remained at the heart of South Africa's history, particularly through the apartheid period, when rumours of imminent uprisings set to clear the land of whites constantly emerged over the years. But in 1901, and before the end of December, De Wet would get his chance to take revenge on his brother. But that's for another day. Right now, we must halt. A big thank you to Tommy, who sent me some support this week, and to Deirdre, who managed to binge listen to 115 episodes in two weeks. My goodness, that's an incredible feat, but thank you for the wonderful support. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time. You can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham or send me an email through my website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Daar onder een dimmel is bij de groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder een dimmel is bij de groen door een boom, daar woont